from Kirkco Media. At a time when turning on the TV is bound to depress even the strongest of us, and we listen to bizarre numbers of coronavirus-afflicted people, not to mention the thousands who've passed, combine this with everyone we know having been grounded, millions out of work, many of us financially struggling, and just to round out this picture, imagine how this must be for people who have trouble with sobriety, addictions, or depression. Coronavirus is creating far-reaching impact, but especially for those who also have to deal with addictions. And some of you have family or friends who are dealing with this challenge. So welcome to perhaps the most challenging corona psychology edition of medicine we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. With us, by the wonders of remote telephony, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. It's good to be here. Good to see you. You know, Dr. Steve has been working 15-hour days running the ICU at Providence Medical Center, and we thank him for his willingness to be on the front lines of this battle every single day. Also, thanks, Steve, for making time for us again today. It's my pleasure. And joining us through the magic of remote Zoom conferencing, Dr. Alan Berger, a nationally renowned psychotherapist and clinical director of the Institute of Optimal Recovery and Emotional Sobriety. He's the author of a best-selling book called The 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery, and its sequel, The 12 More Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. So, doctor, here's the 13th stupid thing, coronavirus. Yeah, we've got to add that now, don't we, Bill? I'm afraid we do. So, Dr. Berger, what can you tell us to help us cope with these massive psychological challenges in these massively weird times? Well, I think the first thing that I'd want to say is that... Um, we're all experiencing anxiety to some level right now. That is the new normal today. We make a distinction between fear and anxiety, and a lot of us are feeling fear because there's a real threat out there, and Dr. Tabak can really help us understand that. So our reaction to this, the fearful part of it, is quite appropriate. That's the reality of it. But I think what will be important today, Bill, is for us to make that distinction between fear and anxiety and to talk about the anxiety part. The fearful part, we need to do what everybody's telling us to do in order to, to stop the spread of this thing and, and to you know, decrease our risk of, of being able in getting the COVID-19. And that's different from anxiety? Well, no, that's, that's the fearful part. That's the appropriate reaction to fear is taking the steps necessary to protect yourself. The anxiety gets in in when we start imagining what's going to happen. So when we leave right now and we go into the future, you see, as soon as I start imagining catastrophic outcomes, I'm going to be in, in bad shape emotionally. How does this get all the worse for someone who might be home these days who's already been struggling with some kind of addiction or challenge with alcohol or drugs? How do they get through this? Yeah, that, that's such an important question. Look, and, and we're all trying to mobilize as many resources as we can to reach out to people that are isolated. And it's a weird thing, isn't it? We're isolated, but in some way, we're even more in community now than before. And I think that's an important thing for us to realize. We're really connected right now, and we really need each other more than we've ever. In addiction and recovery, we talk about, I can't, but we can and that whole idea is so important at this moment more than ever. 
I mean, if we could remove ourselves really from this particular, uh, you know, terrible crisis that we're in and just sort of look at it from uh, a bird's eye view, there's an amazing message in the global nature of this disease, right? It's to me, the message is one of humility. Right. I mean, it's really right-sizing us in an incredible way, isn't it, Dr. Teva? And also just how universal this is. We're all human beings. Yeah. We're all going to be vulnerable. Uh, we all need to take care of each other and take care of our planet. I mean, you can debate back and forth, global warming, this or not. There's no debate here when it comes to coronavirus. And it's almost as if the forces of nature have said, wake up, people. You need to be banding together to work for a common goal, not just corona, but the health of the world for your own sake. Well, I love that. It's it's almost like nature is saying, hey, everybody, wake up. Right? <laughs> wake I mean, up. I, <laughs> you know, exactly. It's a wake-up call. It's a big wake-up call for all of us least. right now. Some of us, like myself, are watching CNN all day long and and you know, watching those numbers on the right hand side of the of the screen continue to go up and this the stress gets more and more overwhelming. You you do find yourself even if you're not struggling with things like depression normally or addiction. Uh, you find yourself kind of different. It does something to you, just listening to what's going on in the world and then dealing with the, am I going to get it? Are any of my family members going to get it? What should I be doing to protect myself at home? And this is weird because my business could be falling apart. Can you give us some ideas on steps we can take personally to try to manage that kind of thing? And how can we recognize if we're not managing it well? Yeah, those, that's a, a very important question, Bill. The American Psychological Association came out with some guidelines, and one of their top guidelines was limit your exposure to the news right now. Now, that's not the same as saying, you know, becoming, you know, an ostrich, stick your head in the sand and, and don't pay attention to what's going on. But we've got to find a balance between being informed but at the same time, taking care of ourselves. And so limiting exposure is an important thing. That's what I've started to do. I give myself a 10-minute quota. <laughs> 10 minutes, I get to watch news a day, and that's it. And then the rest of the time, you know, I'm engaged in other things. So that's the first thing, right, is really pay attention to limiting your time. That's going to help people with their anxiety a lot. So tell me, what, what are some of the other things I've heard about diet and exercise and sleep, but uh, maybe you can kind of help our listeners understand what are the steps that they should take to try to keep as healthy as possible? Let me put it in the context of, of this concept. In addition to our physical center of gravity, there's an emotional center of gravity. And when I keep my emotional center of gravity over my two feet, then I cope a lot better. If I give this virus my emotional center of gravity or what's going on in the world, my emotional center of gravity, then my well-being depends on what's going on around me. And today, that's really bad news. You're, it's, but it's, it's pretty common. It's pretty oh, common. Listen, it's what we're all doing. And see, this is the opportunity. See, if we use this is an opportunity to become aware of ourselves and how we function. What's our habitual ways of thinking and feeling? We've got an opportunity to really do some phenomenal growth. So would you say that the, there's a difference between fear and anxiety? You alluded to that. Would you say fear would be the rational perspective of the challenge that we're under at the moment? 
and that the anxiety is the irrational portion of that? That's correct. So if I stay grounded in in and respond to my fear appropriately, what am I going to do? You know the steps that we need to take to stop the spread of this and to protect ourselves. You know, finally, we're talking about everybody putting a mask on before you leave the house. You know, if there's no host for this thing to to survive in, then we're going to be able to stop the spread of this thing. So that becomes an incredibly important thing. And I think that's what they did to finally, you know, get control of the Spanish flu back in 1918. So from a day-to-day perspective, to sort of live in the moment and realize that right now you're fine. You're, you're not sick. Let's focus on what's good. Let's do what I can do, what I am in control of. Let me take control of that. What is, yeah. what is your recommendation for how the average person who may have just low-level anxiety and even more so those people who have a heightened level of anxiety, how do you keep people away from delving into that what-if scenario? Well, that's such a, a, a great question. Let me tell you how I work with that in my office, right? There's a rational part of me that you just referred to. There's a healthy part of me that that responds appropriately to situations, takes care of myself from a rational basis. Well, there's also a part of me that I call my anxious self. Now, that part of me can take a situation like this and come up with all kind of catastrophic outcomes. I'm going to get this. I'm going to die in the hospital alone. All those things, that's a possible outcome. Whether that's going to happen for me or not is yet to be determined. So when I start to project into the future, I've got to start to think about that the side of me that's projecting into the future is the part of me I need to deal with. So I need to start separating myself from the part of me that's making me anxious. And see, this is a very important step in terms of being able to now manage our anxiety well, or what I would say in the way I'm talking about it now, manage our anxious self. But do you think that on some level, that the human being with our existential reality that to some extent, this anxiety, you put yourself through the what if in a way to try to prepare yourself in the event that it takes place, thinking that maybe that may cushion the blow to try to put yourself through the potential horrendous aspects of the future so that you will not be shocked and unprepared if it were to take place. We call that anticipatory coping. And you're right on. We do that, right? We anticipate these situations. Is it helpful? Well, it is if you do it once, maybe twice, but when you do it a thousand times and you've run through the scenario over and over again, you're no longer preparing. Now you're throwing yourself into a big, into a panic, right? You're going to have a panic attack. I do go down that road of what if, and then I have to reel myself back um, to rational thought. How do you reel yourself back? Tell us what you do. The first thing that I do is say, okay, you know what? You got a job to do. Focus on what's going on right now. Number one. Two, I become try to become more philosophical, and I say it's the here and now anyway. We all know that we're dying eventually. Um, we don't want it to be tomorrow. We don't want it to be two weeks from now. But we all know we've been preparing for this in many ways our whole lives, and so I try to be philosophical about it and say it's going to happen. But let's focus on what's good. Let's focus on what we can control. Let's talk about the psychological stress on medical staff who have to deal with this every day. Not only do they have a concern, they have to, even if they claim they don't. They they have to have a little bit of concern for themselves in this case, multiplied by 
just an overwhelming feeling of almost lack of control because this virus seems to have its own trajectory and they get surprised. Suddenly there's there's a patient who was doing well a few minutes ago and all of a sudden now they're crashing and need to be put on a ventilator. How are healthcare workers supposed to deal with that kind of stress? You guys are all in my prayers right now in terms of what you guys are facing. Here, here's what we know, Bill, is that when you let the situation control you, then you're going to have the best possible response to it. Now, let me explain that because intuitively that seems, what do you mean? You're abdicating any responsibility if you're letting the situation control you. Well, the opposite is true. You see, if I go into a situation thinking I'm going to control everything, and Dr. Steve, you know this better than most, if I think I can control everything that's going to be happening in front of me, I'm setting myself up for some big trouble because then I become fixed in my response. If something has to be a certain way, if it's supposed to look like this, then I'm not going to be able to respond to what it is. And what we know is your coping increases when you let go of what's supposed to be happening and you start to deal with what is. If I let go of all of my rules of what's supposed to be happening, Bill, I can respond much better. Inside every one of us and every one of those, those healthcare professionals right now is an incredible ability to adapt and to deal with situations as they are. You know, a, a book that I've heard mentioned a few times, and that's meant a lot to me, is Man's Search for Meaning. And it's by Viktor Frankl. And if you've read that, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, he talks about how did, you, how did he get through the concentration camp, these Nazi death camps? He was in four of them. And what did he see other people doing to survive from a psychological point of view? Obviously, sometimes the physical demands, you know, were too much and people died. From, from the conditions that they were facing. But psychologically, what they had to do to get through this was let go of every expectation they had about how things were supposed to be. And that's the attitude that got them through it. Steve, I have to ask you, um, can, can you tell me what kind of conversations are you having with your associates at the hospital and your friends who are doctors and nurses? And uh, how, how are you guys dealing with it uh, you know, day to day, do you talk about it? You know, we, we talk about it all the time. And doctors and nurses, we're all human. And so we are dealing with our own fears and anxiety and at the same time trying to do our job. It's amazing to see the people that I work with, doctors and nurses who have risen to this challenge and they're taking it on boldly. And yet I can see the fear in their faces. So it's a question of, we feel our fear, we feel our anxiety, but we work through it anyway. You're actually dealing right now in the corona war with a lack of knowledge. You actually are, are learning as you go. The whole of society is trying to figure out what makes this disease tick. So you've got to be feeling, in addition to a little bit concerned for yourself, a lot concerned for your patients, you actually don't have marching orders and don't know what's going to make this virus stop killing. All of the things that you just said are, are actually very true. Uh, but in spite of that, you can compartmentalize it a little bit into our game plan. And it's not a great game plan, but our game plan is to be as safe as possible every day 
flatten that curve so that the vast majority of people will eventually benefit from the scientific ad advances that will be forthcoming. But at the end of the day, our, our orders are stay healthy, take care of your patients, flatten that curve, do what you're supposed to do. And, and we're all waiting as human beings for the, the scientific advances that hopefully will be forthcoming. With that, we're going to take a quick one-minute break, and we're going to hear about something that you can all do to feel good, share your thoughts and stories with our listeners. We'll be right back. Hello out there. <laughs> this is Jenny Curtis. I am a podcast producer at Kurtco Media, and I am currently sitting alone in a very empty podcast studio surrounded by hand sanitizer. <laughs> And I'm recording this in an effort to reach out. It's not an easy time right now. We don't know what the day-to-day -day is going to look like for the next few weeks, even months. So I'm proposing something. Let's all make something together. Kurtco Media has launched a podcast called A Moment of Your Time. These are bite-sized episodes, and each one features you out there. Go to kurtco.com slash a moment of your time for more information. We may have to stay apart. Let's create together. You can also go to kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. We're here with Dr. Alan Berger and Dr. Stephen Tabak. Alan, I wonder if I could put you on the spot a little more, whether it's a healthcare professional or the rest of us or people who might be struggling with, with addictions and other challenges and depression in their life, if they're feeling overwhelmed. In New York, a place where it's got to be considered ground zero for this virus as cases multiply exponentially, they've apparently got over 6,000 mental health professionals that have signed up to provide free online services for people in New York State. Are there other programs like this that our listeners can go to if they kind of run out of coping ability themselves? We've, all of us mental health professionals here in California, just got a notice from our boards that uh, the governor is mobilizing a mental health and health care task force. And uh, he's calling it the, the health care core. And he's wanting psychologists, licensed marriage and family counselors, social workers to sign up so we can start to develop that. And so all of us healthcare professionals, especially psychologists and psychotherapists, we they have relaxed the HIPAA requirements, and now we can do psychotherapy over Zoom, over FaceTime, over Skype sessions, and we're still not going to be held accountable that we're somehow not protecting a patient's confidentiality. There's a lot of things happening out there. I'm open sourcing some of my talks. They're available for people in recovery to support them. And there's a lot of my colleagues. I'm doing pro bono work right now. A lot of several of my patients have lost their careers right now. They can't work. They're not making any money. Let me ask you this tough question about a very selective type of anxiety. What do you say to my patient who is locked in a room, short of breath, getting progressively more short of breath, fearful about what might be not, you know, going to the future for you and I who right now are healthy, somebody who's ill, somebody who is really wondering, is this going to get worse or get better? How do they cope with that? What can I, what information do you have? What can I 
say to that patient that will somehow allay or minimize their anxiety. And now we've got how many, you know, thousands and thousands of patients possibly confronting that same situation with no psychotherapist sitting at their side to deal with this. Uh, you could tell me better what, what resources are available. Can they write a letter at that particular point in time? Now start expressing some of the things that they want to express to those people they cared about and that they love and to be able to communicate. Because I know, you know, that visiting is, is, is limited, if not completely locked down in most hospitals. So are there ways to be able to communicate what we, what we need to communicate and say to those people we love and care about? That becomes a very important thing because my own experience with, with my anxiety is that in addition to it being a projection into the future, it's also at times related to me needing to experience something that I'm stopping myself from experiencing. So I hope that makes sense. So as soon as I shut myself down from, let's say, crying about and, and feeling my fear and owning it at that point, when I shut that feeling down, it converts into anxiety. So the more I can keep myself expressing that, either through writing, through journaling, through talking to someone, through sharing what's going on and owning it, then I'm going to be able to manage that to the best of my ability at that time. Wouldn't the most productive thing to do from doctor to patient in that kind of case is somehow provide a little modicum of hope? giving them maybe the strength to get through it? That certainly is my strategy every day because there is hope. It's not a foregone conclusion that it's over. Um, they could certainly get better and there could be a new therapy and treatment right around the corner as soon as the very next day. So I think there's a lot of reason for hope and I always give them hope when there's obvious true evidence of hope. Yeah, it's a great point. The installation of hope at that point becomes very important. And look, even if somebody's hopeful, they're still going to have those thoughts and feelings. See, and that's the thing. They're going to say, well, if there's a 50% chance, which side of that am I going to fall on? And still, if that feeling comes up, there's ways that they can be encouraged to deal with it. One of the things that got me so frustrated, and I'd have to say is adding stress to my day, is all the contradictory information that we get from our various leaders and authorities and Whatever we hear today is likely going to be different from yesterday, and we know it's going to be different from tomorrow. So that, to me, that sets up a kind of a stress that I personally find a little annoying to deal with. Can you give us some thoughts on how to think about that kind of situation a little differently? You're really highlighting, I think, something that is exacerbating this whole situation. But when we're also confronted with an inability to be able to count on clear direction and solid direction and based on scientific information, uh, I, I feel that personal crisis with all of this. I was in Vietnam in, in 1970, and I was fortunate to have a captain over there that really was a veteran of combat. And we had a gunnery sergeant that knew what to do. When a firefight would start, when we would get hit, I could trust the direction that these two gentlemen were giving us as, as a battery to get us through that situation. And there was our training came into play, like you talked about, Dr. Steve. But at the same time, having a leader that I could have faith in also did a lot 
to help me remain calm in those situations and, and to do what I needed to do to have an appropriate response. Well, we don't have that right now. I know for me, I'm being very, very selective of who I'm turning to information for. I love the discussion that Bill Gates had the other day on CNN about his work and his research into this. It was solid information. And it wasn't all Pollyanna. It was just facts about what we're up against. But there was something about the way he was talking about it. The reality that he was talking about helped me feel calm, even though it wasn't great news. And there's something to be said about that, is that when you can trust the information you're getting, we can start to deal with that. What do you see us needing from our leadership to help us through these kind of times economically, worry about health, worried about friends, having guilt that we're not doing enough for friends, so many different walls closing in on us. What do you think a leader should do to try to help us through this? Well, to me, I would love a leader that could show some empathy and could make some decisions that were based on scientific information. If there was some confidence we had in the direction we were given, it would help us tremendously, as well as if we had someone that understood what our experience was and how challenging this is for every person. Those two elements would be priceless at this particular point in time. Yeah, you need an evolved human being that has heart and mind that both work collaboratively. Let's talk to some of our listeners who have been sober for years. They're off drugs, but people really are never really cured in those kind of cases, right? They always have to, you know, keep track of themselves. So now we've got stressful times like these, and now we need to consciously manage a tendency toward addiction. Tell us how we do that in the case where we're home alone. Well, we got to guard against that hopelessness that we were talking about before. Because if I feel hopeless, then I I give up on managing my recovery. I give up on protecting myself from my illness. And if I think that there's no hope, why not go out with a bang? See, what I say in one of my books, Bill, is that the addict self has a way of making wrong seem right and right seem wrong. So does the addict know when they're moving toward a relapse? Can they react from a solid thought process or is it really just creeping up on them and all of a sudden they find themselves in a bad place? I think it happens that way for a lot of people, Bill, is it creeps up on them. And we say that the relapse starts way before a person picks up a drink or or uses any other kind of a drug. And look, underneath all of this, is how much faith do we have in ourselves and our ability to grow and to cope with whatever is set in front of us? I think also an important message would be that, you know, we, we can take care of ourselves and we have responsibility for ourselves, but what an important time for all of us to reach out to each other. And thank God for FaceTime and Zoom and sponsors can reach out in ways that they never could before. Um, there's so much that we can do together to support each other emotionally uh, in, in this day and age with, with this technology. And I think it behooves us all to really maximize that uh, you know, to, to its greatest potential. What are some ways that someone at higher than normal risk for relapse can get the in-person support that they need to get through a, an extended crisis like this? Well, if that person doesn't have a sponsor to reach out to someone that they've been going to meetings with and make that person your temporary sponsor, 
you know, all of us, you know, are available for that at this particular point in time. Um, but, you know, back to the question about the, the Zoom technology, I, we've, we just started a meeting the other night called Emotional Sobriety Anonymous to try to help people get through this crazy time. A fellow reached out to me from Scotland the other day as, I want to go to the meeting. How do I do that? He's never Zoomed before. So we're connecting him with someone to teach him how to Zoom. And so people are out there that can help you learn how to use this technology. And, and you know, what I found, it's, it's not as intimidating once I start to get into it. How do you know how to approach the, the best way to approach a friend that you feel may be at risk? You ask for permission. Yeah, ask for permission. I'm going to call a friend and say, look, I know you're going through a lot. You're really concerned right now. Would it be helpful if I talk to you about this? But I want to see if that's something that you want to do. You know, that checking in and I call it being coordinated with someone becomes very important at this time. Not assuming they don't want to talk about it or not assuming that they do is give that person the opportunity to let you know what they need. And this situation is a time for the serenity prayer. If the one thing that people can take away from what we say Use that prayer as often as you need to. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and that's me, and the wisdom to know the difference. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. While we take a little breath, I want to tell you about a good friend of mine named Kimberly James. She is CEO of Beach House Treatment Programs. Her website is beachhousetreatment.com, and her phone number is 310-977-4018. So if you're struggling with addiction, trauma, or depression, or for that matter, you know someone who needs help, the Rolls-Royce of treatment centers is Beach House Treatment Programs in Malibu, California. Beachhousetreatment.com, 310-977-4018. Well, we're back. How do you deal with guilt? As a friend, as a family member, the guilt of thinking you're not doing enough, you're not doing it right. Well, God, I knew this would get to a personal thing for me, so I just got a call yesterday. Um, The man who sponsored my recovery, I came in recovery in 1971, so he's been involved in my life for over 48 years now. Um, his wife, um, has had stage four lung cancer and she was responding pretty well to chemotherapy. And then the other day, her lungs started to fill up with fluids a lot quicker than before. And they suspected something else was going on, brought her in the hospital, did a CAT scan and they found something growing quite rapidly in her chest. So she turns out having coronavirus. So the, um, the family doctor, the oncologist said, there's nothing we can do for her. We're recommending that she stops the chemotherapy right now. So their family doctor says, well, look, if she goes in the hospital, there's very little chance that she's going to make it. Um, she's going to be put on a ventilator, but because of her condition and her vulnerability, she's going to die in the hospital. He shared that with me and they made the choice together to face this at home. So, you know, Bill, as he's telling this to me, I'm, of course, I can sense the challenge that he's facing at this point to be with his wife. And on top of it, he's, he's also positive for coronavirus and he's 72 years old and he's got concerns. 
Well, under any other condition, I'd be on a plane flying over there to be at his side and to support him while he's going through this. And I've got a family. I've got a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. And it would be irresponsible at this point to go expose myself to that and, and to what that would do with my family. But the guilt I feel is terrible. I so much want to be there for it. He's been there for me so many times. So it doesn't sound like this is something that even someone with your training can manage. No, it's I'm in a lot of pain about it. Obviously, you hear it in my voice and you hear what's going on. And I'm going to be there for him. I'm going to check in with him as often as I can. But there's a part of me that feels like the right thing to do would be to stand at his side and just, you know, be at his house and prepare him meals and do whatever I needed to do to help them. You know, I, I see that and I feel that, but you, there really should not be guilt there. You're doing everything you can do. In fact, to go there would be irresponsible. It would be. I, that's but the rational side really of me figured that. The responsible thing is to take care of your family, but you're also yeah. going to take care of him in any which way you can. And so you do the best you can, which you will do. You're obviously such a compassionate guy, yeah. and he's going to feel your compassion whether you're at his bedside or yeah. whether you're Zooming or, or telephoning. So I'm sure he's going to feel you there. No, and I got that. I mean, I could really sense that when we were talking about it the other day, and he appreciated my my compassion and empathy for him and all of that. And I do, I hear what you're saying, Steve, and I appreciate that. So is logic and good sense a good weapon against the guilt that really isn't going to do you any good at all? I was trained to think of guilt as pain and that I need to give expression to the pain behind it. As irrational as it is for me to think of going there and doing that, I need to cry like with you about it and share that with you. Right now I feel better just having cried for a few minutes with you, that it just helps me deal with that situation. So if I can just allow myself and not have some of these rules about how I'm supposed to deal with this and who, how I should be strong, it's nonsense. Forget that. Just allow yourself to have the reaction that you're having. And that's what I would encourage people to do. If you're feeling guilt, try to get at the pain that's underneath that guilt. Give some voice to it. And then, like Steve says, then the rational part of you can step in. And, and you know, you don't have to be driven by that. And you can now understand that we're all faced with a two-choice dilemma. And there's no, no, no choice that doesn't have a dilemma to it. The fact that you can't make it to the East Coast, right. that's, that's, you're putting an extreme set of circumstances and pressure on yourself that isn't rational. Oh, I, I get that, Stephen. I, I understand that. I understand it, you know, and you're right. I, when I, I, do, I do put a lot of pressure on myself to live up to some pretty high expectations. When I have an overwhelming issue, I become mentally unproductive. It takes over everything. I can't be creative. I, I can't really work through things because it keeps on coming up and I, I get that, that drowning moment. And it's not terribly productive. What kind of steps could I go through to get hold of myself and be more productive in that kind of case? Bringing yourself back to the moment can be a very, very powerful thing because all of that concern you have is about what's going to happen and what's going on in the future. So what I'll do is if I have a patient in a session with me that's getting overwhelmed and really getting flooded by their feelings, that's what we call it, is that when your emotions start to flood you, I will have them get connected to right now. I'll say, look in my eyes. Tell me what color you see my eyes. 
Look at the room. What color do you see? What colors do you see in the room? Pay attention to sensations in your body. Describe them to me. So the more we can bring a person back to right now, it helps them get grounded again, Bill. And that grounding becomes a very important thing. Interesting. Is that kind of a meditation sort of a... It, it, you can think of it as that. It's, it's kind of an awareness exercise is the way I call it. Is just bringing your full awareness to this moment, describing every sound you're hearing, describing colors in the room, where you see the illumination and how it's casting shadows. I mean, all of that can ground us because all that is sensory information available to us in this moment. And that can bring us right back to now. And that'll stop you from spinning out and flooding yourself and going into the overwhelm. Then after you're grounded, you might think of separating yourself once again from the side of you that's overwhelmed, that's concerned about all these things, and actually having a dialogue with that side. You know, let that side speak to you. What does it say? Well, I'm worried about this. And what if that happens? And then you go to the other side. You could do this on a piece of paper. On one side, you let the the person, the side of you that's overwhelmed talk. I'm overwhelmed because of this and that. And then on the other side, your healthy self, your mature yourself, your wise self, bring that into the foreground and have your wise self respond to that part and let a dialogue go back and forth. That can be incredibly helpful after you get grounded, but you got to get grounded. Sometimes taking a walk when you're in that place can do it, doing some exercise. There's a lot of things that we can do to change what's happening right now. Physical, looking at the kind of language we're using. What do you mean by the language we're using? Well, if, if I start to should on myself, you know, like Steve was catching me a minute ago when he says, Alan, you're shooting on yourself. You're putting all these shoulds that you should all be over there. You should be doing that. Right. When I do that, then I'm going to start to feel overwhelmed. You know, I'm putting this incredible pressure on myself or this side of me is the shooter is shooting on me and putting this pressure on myself. And if I listen to the should, I can get rid of it. There's no should here. Healthy people don't live their, their lives with a lot of shoulds. You know, the interesting thing, I think, is that we can be, in many ways, especially as overachievers who have high expectations for ourselves, we are, we are capable of being compassionate with our friends, but we're not so compassionate with ourselves. If I called you, Bill, and I said, listen, I'm feeling all of these things, what would you say to me to comfort me? And then say it to yourself, damn it, try to say that to yourself. Comfort yourself. It's okay. Think about it. A lot of times that we save our worst behavior for ourselves. We're much nicer to family and, you know, or especially friends, our families, we probably end up treating them more like we treat ourselves, but friends, we treat them a lot better than we treat ourselves. We're certainly much more forgiving of our friends and more nurturing of our friends than we are of ourselves. Such a great point. Great point. Let's make a, a little bit of a left turn here. And I know this is a situation that's going on a lot right now. A normal working mom and dad home alone with their eight or ten year olds, who, by the way, normally would be going to daycare and schools and and soccer practice and baseball practice. But now there's no break at all. There's no rest for the foreseeable future. How are parents supposed to deal with the kind of pressure nonstop kids? I'm bored, mom. You can't go out and play with your friends. Give us some advice for parents. This, more than any time, is just about being a good enough parent. You're not going to pull this off perfect. None of us are. 
even if you're a healthcare worker, you're going to do the best job you can do. You're going to still make mistakes, especially as you get tired and fatigued and more stressed out. As a parent, give yourself a break. And when you make that mistake, come back to your kids and just say, you know, I just lost it, you know, and, and I just make amends for it. Good enough is great right now. Good enough is fantastic, <laughs> you know, and we need to really, really, really understand that. But how do, how do you give yourself a break? Because every parent needs a break. Look, at if you've, if you've got a partner at home, you get that break by turning to your partner and, and doing yeah. the tag team thing. It's right? your turn, saying, honey. It's your turn, honey, you know. But, you know, if you're a single parent, that's really tough right now. But look, that's where a Zoom can come in. Let's call grandma. Let grandma read you a few stories right now. That's a good idea. But it's challenging for the kids, too. And that's the other thing. Give your kids a break. The meaning it has to them is going to be in many ways determined by what it means to you. What do you tell your eight-year-old, Alan? I talk to my eight-year-old about the fact that the world is facing a, a real challenge right now. There's this virus. My wife's a scientist, so she's able to come in and help Maddie understand what that virus means and talks to her about it. We just try to be grounded, and we're taking all the steps we can to protect ourselves and protect our family. She reaches out to her older sister a lot and to her cousins and her grandma and grandpa and you know, and we just try to, to make her world what it can be at this particular point in time. What are some signs that kids aren't handling it that well, that your 8- or 10-year-old needs some help that I may or may not be trained for? First of all, let's understand nobody's going to handle this well. Let's get rid of that, <laughs> and let's just talk about handling it, right? Look, if a child that is typically not withdrawn becomes incredibly withdrawn at this particular point in time, that's a, at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag. If your child goes the opposite way and you've got a child that is typically pretty subdued and more on the passive side and becomes incredibly energetic. So any change, any massive change from you? Any massive behavior. change from what you typically experience is something I'd be concerned about. And I would connect with someone to do some telemedicine at this particular point in time. Alan, let me ask you a question. Let's, let's take ourselves a year down the road. What do you expect to see in terms of post-traumatic stress and, and the reaction that many people are going to have after the fact? That's a good question, Steve. That's one place my head has gone to, Steve, a lot in terms of what is this going to mean for all of us. We're going to have a nation that's been traumatized by this whole thing. And more than ever before, our mental health and our well-being is going to be coming to the foreground. I think in terms of you and medicine, you guys are going to see more stress-related issues than you've ever seen before. You know, sometimes what happens in a crisis like this, some people just kind of push off their feelings to decide to take care of business, especially if they're, they've got children and stuff like this. But down the road, all that's going to come back. Right. You just got to bottle it up. You got to just wall it off. Got to wall it off. And a lot of healthcare workers are going to go through the same. I mean, you guys are going to be experiencing a ton of that post-traumatic stress in terms of what's going on. You know, there's that psychotherapy today is much better than it's ever been. And if you have a decent relationship with a person you're working with, there's a very good chance it's going to be helpful. Dr. Allen Berger, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and shedding some light on a very complicated subject that clearly we didn't handle all of today. But maybe you'd come back and join us again sometime. I'm here whenever you'd like me to, Bill. 
I just want to echo what Bill said, Alan. It was it was a real pleasure meeting you, getting to know you, getting to know your heart and your mind. Uh, you must be an incredible therapist, and your patients are very fortunate to have you. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. You can learn more about Dr. Berger and his work at www.abphd.com. Any place else, uh, doctor, that you can suggest people go if they want to look further into some of these issues? You can go on Amazon. I've written a bunch of books, but this is also a great time to read Man's Search for Meaning. There's a lot of truths in that that can help us get through this dark time. Dr. Stephen Tabak, as always, you round out the conversation and really help out. I really appreciate you, especially under these circumstances, breaking away from everything else that's really challenging and coming in and helping us today. Bill, always a pleasure to see you and speak to you. Until next week, where we'll hit part three of the coronavirus editions of medicine, we're still practicing. We'll see you soon. Stay together. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Doctor, doctor. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.